This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Right now, there are more than 2 million confirmed coronavirus cases around the globe, more than 600,000 in the United States alone. The worldwide death toll, just over 132,000 dead. The death toll here in the United States now eclipsing 27,000. That's nearly double what it was one week ago. Yesterday marked the deadliest day in the United States for coronavirus. After days of trending down, the number shot back up with 2,405 people losing their lives to this disease in a single day in a single country. Breaking this afternoon, in a call with President Trump today, business leaders said that testing needs to be dramatically increased across the country in order to boost public confidence before relaxing any restrictions and attempting to open up the economy, according to a source. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, of course, has warned that without increased capacity for testing so as to be able to isolate the virus, May 1st, which the president has set as a possible deadline, is overly optimistic to reopen the country and could, in fact, cause a resurgence of the disease. The head of the CDC today cautioned the same thing, saying that more testing and contact tracing is necessary before any American goes back to work. It's a sentiment that was echoed by New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo earlier today. The more testing, the more open the economy. We need the federal government to be part of this. Testing capacity to me is like what ventilators were uh, over the past month. Let's start with that warning from business leaders to President Trump today, the testing needs to be ramped up significantly. It needs to be far more widespread before any discussions of bringing people back to work. CNN's Caitlin Collins is live at the White House and is bringing us the story. Caitlin, this was the the first meeting, a phone meeting, I guess, of the president's new uh, business council. Are, Are there any indications that the business leaders were able to convince the president? Well, that's the question we're going to have for him this afternoon at the press briefing, because this was the first of a series of calls he had today with these business executives that he's invited to give him advice as they are weighing reopening the country and when exactly they're going to do that and really what that's going to look like. And the first message from these executives on this first call, which was banking executives, financial executives, those from retail, hospitality, restaurants of that nature, was that you're going to have to ramp up testing if we're going to open our businesses and people are going to feel safe coming in. They made sure to tell the president that was a priority for them, essentially saying that they do not feel that they're at the level of that right now, because a lot of these companies were basically telling the president, if these consumers don't feel comfortable coming in, then we're not going to be opening up until this testing has ramped up further. Now, we are told there was a lot of praise to the president on this call and what his administration has done so far. But, Jake, this could be kind of a reality check for the president, because for the last two weeks, we've seen him insisting that testing in the U.S. is fine. He said he has not heard a lot of concerns about the testing so far anymore from state officials, though we know state officials have been talking about this as well. And it comes, of course, as the president and his economic advisors are pushing to have at least some kind of opening on May 1 when those deadlines expire. Every single state official I've heard talk about this says that he or she needs much more ramped up testing across the state and across the country. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. As testing remains the central issue around reopening the country, there is more tension between the president and the nation's governors, including this question. How much is President Trump going to push them to do what health officials are currently advising them to not do? As Erica Hill reports, Governor Cuomo said today that though New York appears to be on the downslope of the virus, they are not out of the woods yet. 
more masks, more time apart, more testing, and more realistic expectations. If we move too quick, we put 50,000 people in Yankee Stadium, and that's part of why you see a resurgence of the disease, that would be the worst of all worlds. We got one chance. As the president continues to push for a symbolic May 1st reopening, officials around the country are focused on their communities. Following the lead of California Governor Gavin Newsom, confirming this new normal is here to stay. In New Orleans, the mayor suggesting major events like Jazz Fest won't be back until 2021. Mississippi, the latest state to close schools for the remainder of the academic year, as experts predict the virus will return. We're going to have another battle with it, you know, up front uh, aggressively next next winter. This is why it's so important we take the time now to really improve our testing capacity, expand our public health uh, capacity to do early case recognition, contact tracing, isolation. I call it block and tackle, block and tackle. Los Angeles now offering same or next day testing to its 10 million residents. Anyone with COVID symptoms is eligible. The nation's first saliva testing site is now open in New Jersey. Major League Baseball pitching in for antibody testing. Players, their families, concession workers, some 10,000 volunteers in total, part of a nationwide study to better understand the infection and its spread. Knowledge that is essential to any reopening. It is very hard to bring this to scale quickly, and we need the federal government to be part of this. New York today announcing mandatory face coverings in public when social distancing can't be maintained as the state cautiously embraces a plateau. Meantime, Georgia prepares for a potential surge and Midwestern states discuss a coordinated regional plan to reopen, similar to efforts in the Northeast and on the West Coast. This is not a light switch going on or off. Uh, This is going to be uh, making a change, testing it, modeling it, and then seeing whether it works. And then if it does, you can make another change. Also key to any lasting change, a vaccine. We're talking targeting fall for the emergency use. Um, So that would be, you know, for healthcare workers and people who might be in constant contact um, and, and, and risk of being exposed over and over. For the rest of America, that vaccine is likely at least a year away. With each new day, new victims put a face on this battle. Gregory Hodge, an EMT, was a 24-year veteran of the FDNY. He helped at the World Trade Center after 9-11, the department announcing his death due to COVID-19. Gregory Hodge was 59 years old. Jake, we're also learning more about efforts in different cities. San Francisco today saying that they are launching a partnership for contact testing. And in Los Angeles, the mayor, Eric Garcetti, last night in his press conference talked about something he labeled Care Corps, a proposal he's working on with the mayor of Oklahoma City uh, that would put people to work doing contact tracing and other important jobs in local areas. He says he should have some more details on that uh, today and also said, Jake, that he believes that should be funded by the federal government. All right, Erica Hill in New York, thank you so much and stay safe. Joining me now, as always, CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, uh, this does seem significant that business leaders, in addition to top health officials, are urging President Trump uh, to get up to speed much more testing before allowing or pushing individuals to go back to work to reopen the economy. Hmm. No question. I mean, testing has been the priority, uh, will continue to be the priority as we uh, try and 
you know, reopen the economy. There's, there's no question about it. And now we know that there are people who, who uh, uh, can even shed this virus, Jake, uh, you know, spread the virus even before they develop symptoms. We know that people in the past who, who are asymptomatic, never develop any symptoms, can spread it. And now we know the most vulnerable time for people who do develop symptoms is before they even get sick. They need to be tested. They have no idea. Right now, I think the, the, the question that should be asked, I think there's plenty of, it sounds like there's more and more tests out there. Uh, the, the labs are doing fewer tests and more people want to get tested. So what, what's, what's going on here? People want the test. The testing is available. There's no backlog. What's going on there? Something in between is broken. Everyone in the country should be able to answer this question. Right now, if you wanted to get tested, would you know exactly what to do? Could you get the results back in a day? Everyone in the country should be able to answer yes to that question before we can really reopen the country. Let's dive into some of the, the points you just made. Uh, the first one uh, you, you refer, referred to, you alluded to a study published today in the journal Nature Medicine, finding that people actually might be most infectious, meaning uh, most able yeah. to infect other people with the coronavirus before they actually show any symptoms, um, which adds to this growing body of evidence that, that seemingly healthy people are really spreading the virus to a large degree. What should people watching at home do, if anything, with this information? I, you know what they should do, Jake? It's probably the thing that you and I talked about, I think, six weeks ago now. I remember still on your program, and we said people need to behave like they have the virus. That, that's been the point. That was the point then. It's still the point. You may not know you have it. You may never develop symptoms, or you may not have yet developed symptoms. But you, not only could you be infectious, you could even be more so than when you get sick. Um, and this also speaks to contact tracing. Think about like everybody that you may have come in contact with after you were sick, maybe a smaller number because hopefully you stayed home. But do you know everyone you came in contact with for the three days before you started to develop symptoms? It's going to make this process really challenging. But again, that needs to be in place before we can start opening the country again. Also really shows the importance of testing if you're your most infectious when you don't have any symptoms at all. Um, eliminating the social distancing restrictions or physical distancing restrictions would obviously rely to a large degree on there being some sort of vaccine. Uh, the lead NIH scientist on the vaccine, Dr. Corbett, said yesterday uh, that NIH uh, ho hopes to have something ready for frontline workers, meaning healthcare workers uh, and, and EMTs and police and the like, by the fall with a larger public rollout next spring. Is that timeline real, realistic? It, that seems kind of like good news. Yeah, it does seem like good news. I mean, I was part of that interview with her. I mean, she seemed confident, you know, uh, but there's a lot of caveats, Jake. I mean, the, the vaccine's got to still be proven to be safe and proven to be effective. What I got the sense, Jake, you know, there's three phases. There's phase one, which is safety, phase two, which is effectiveness, and phase three, where you do the really large trials of lots of people to make sure it holds up. My sense was that maybe after phase two, as, as part of an emergency use, they may allow this to start being used in healthcare workers, maybe as still as part of a trial. But she seemed pretty confident by next spring, it should be available for the general public, which would be good news. I mean, vaccines can take up, take up to 10 years to make, Jake. So this is a pretty rapid schedule. Very rapid. And, and Sanjay, you also referred to this, the daily number of COVID-19 tests performed by commercial labs has declined in the past week. Um, even though demand is only increasing. Do we have any idea why this is? I think there may still be too strict a criteria for who can get tested. I mean, you know, the criteria have been all over the place, but now it's saying people who only have symptoms should get tested. 
as we were just talking about, obviously a lot of people may not have any symptoms or may not yet have symptoms and they need to be tested. So I think ultimately if we say testing is widely available for the individual out there, it's got to mean as they watch this, they know exactly who to call or where to go or have someone come to their house even or have an in-home test or something, they can get tested. Everyone in the country should be able to answer the question, would you know how to get tested right now if you had to? And I think the majority of people still don't know that. I still get calls from healthcare workers in some places, Jake, uh, where they still have a hard time getting tested. So numbers have gone up, but it's not widely sort of distributed or applied around the country. The FDA has now approved at least three different tests for antibodies, which theoretically detect whether or not somebody has been exposed to the virus uh, and recovered from it. Um, If you have had the virus, we talked about this yesterday, but just to reiterate, if you have had the virus, if you test positive for antibodies in your system, we don't necessarily know because this virus is this coronavirus is so new, so novel. We don't necessarily know that it means that you're then free and clear and you can never get it again. But that's the hope. Am I right? Yeah, I think that's the hope. And I think if you talk to most, uh, you know, um, uh, infectious disease doctors, they'll say presumably that's the case. You should have some immunity against this because that is how other viruses and even similar viruses have behaved. We don't know how strong that immunity will be, and we don't know how long. By the way, I just got to say you brought up Dr. Corbett earlier, who's, who's spearheading the vaccine. I said, well, how do we know the vaccine will work then? Because of this, you know, we don't know if the antibodies are protective. And she said the vaccine is going to be totally different. Because it'll have been tested, it'll, it'll, give, it'll give you the longer and stronger protection than the antibodies you get from becoming infected. So she was drawing a distinction between the vaccine that hopefully will be available by this time next year versus just getting infected. Because a lot of people say, why don't I just get infected? I'll be protected that way. The vaccine is a much better approach. Yeah, I mean, also, you might get killed by the coronavirus, as we've seen. It's deadlier than the regular and you can get really influenza. Sick. Exactly, uh, ca- yeah. Yeah, right, and even if you don't die from it, you can exactly. get very, very sick. Um, there are a lot of accounts of people who have survived it who are still really, really hurting. Um, California Governor Gavin Newsom laid out what the new normal could look like um, California and in California and across the country as social distancing is eased. Temperature checks at restaurants, waiters wear gloves uh, at restaurants, tables are set up uh, six feet apart, limited large gatherings. Um, is this what Americans should prepare for when we talk about the new normal uh, that we're not really, at least in the next year or so, going to go back to what things were like? I, th- I think there's going to be an incremental changes in society. I don't think it's going to go back to normal right away by any means. I think it ultimately will, though, Jake. I mean, that's one thing. I, you know, there'll be some things that maybe are going to be forever different. But I think for the most part, at some point, I think it will go back to normal. Two reasons. One is I think the vaccine will make a big difference. And two is that we, you know, we, uh, Jake, you've covered news for a long time. We do have incredibly short memories, as, as powerful and indelible seemingly this experience is right now. People do forget and move on at some point, Jake. Well, maybe. I mean, we're still taking our shoes off at airports. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Really appreciate it. Be sure to tune in for a CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears, hosted by Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Anderson Cooper. That's tomorrow night at 8 p.m. right here on CNN. Also, don't forget to check out Sanjay's podcast. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, will join me live next to talk about the push for testing President Trump defunding or putting a pause on funding for the World Health Organization and whether or not there will be another stimulus package. Plus, President Trump loves to put his name on his buildings, even if he doesn't actually own the buildings. Now his name could be 
possibly causing a delay for stimulus checks that millions of Americans are waiting to be cut and sent to them. Stay with us. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi sent a scathing letter to her Democratic colleagues tearing apart President Trump's response to the coronavirus crisis and calling him incompetent. We're joined now by Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Speaker Pelosi, uh, thanks so much for joining us. We're glad that you're you're well and safe. Um, Let me start with uh, some of the breaking news here. The White House is working on suggesting that some parts of the country can begin relaxing guidelines uh, so people can get back to work on May 1st. Politico is reporting that in a phone call with Democrats, you called that, quote, almost sinful. Uh, is that true? And, and why? Well, I do believe that any return to uh, opening up everything has to be based on uh, health care, the, the good health of the American people. But let me first say, though, what a sad time it is for all of us just to hear the story of the NYPD officer who helped save people or uh, responded to 9-11, losing his life to the coronavirus, just drives home every single story. The numbers are staggering, but each individual story, just heartbreaking uh, to hear. Uh, So as we have discussions about how we open up our economy, this or that, uh, we understand that this is an assault on the lives and the livelihoods, uh, uh, livelihoods of the American people and that the, uh, any decision uh, to open up would be one that should be science-based and, and uh, healthcare-based and what it means. And that's why it's so important to come back to those three big words, testing, testing, testing. On March 4th, we passed a bill we prepared in February, brought to the floor and passed on March 4th. It was called testing, testing, testing. Here we are nearly a month and a half later, and we still do not have uh, the appropriate and adequate testing for us to identify and take inventory of the challenge that we face to have the racial mm-hmm. uh, data to show where how this is happening and where. And so really, if we have been delinquent. Uh, we have to have a change in that. It's one thing to say, well, we didn't, it wasn't done right, but there's no excuse for us to not do it right as we go forward. It's so obvious. Almost what's your take on President What's your take on President Trump's name appearing on these uh, stimulus checks? Shameful, just as you know, in other words, people are really desperate to get a check. Let me put it in perspective. The three things that really uh, anger the American people, there are others, but three of them are one that our first responders, our health care workers, our police and fire, our uh, EMS, all, all the people of food and, and uh, other essential workers do not have the equipment that they need to keep themselves safe as they minister to the needs of others. That They do not have the ventilators and other equipment to save lives uh, that are in their charge. That's one. The second is they want their checks. They want their unemployment check. They want their direct payment check that you're talking about here. Uh, they want the uh, PPP, the uh, Paycheck Protection Play, uh, Program checks to come forward, and they're not seeing that. And the third thing they want is for us not uh, to have any of the billions of dollars that have gone uh, to big business uh, to help keep people employed. They don't want any of that uh, to be used for, to enrich shareholders, uh, buybacks, uh, bonuses, dividends, CEO pay, and the rest of that. So if you put those three things there, mm-hmm. that's what we 
uh, in the CARES Act is to make all of this something uh, that would happen. Uh, but again, the entree, the door opening, the threshold to cross into opening up our economy is through testing, testing, testing. So, Speaker Pelosi, let me ask you about the PPP, the Paycheck Protection uh, Plan. Uh, specifically, the Small Business Administration is saying that they're going to run out of money for these emergency loans to small businesses. Uh, Democrats in the Senate uh, have been holding up uh, an infusion of $250 billion into the program. They want more guarantees that the money will go to smaller businesses, not just bigger businesses. They also want more funding going to states and hospitals and the like. Um, what do you make of this? I mean, if the SBA is really going to run out of money today, uh, it sounds pretty dire. What, what's your response? Well, the response is that a week, uh, last Tuesday, a week ago from yesterday, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury called me, said I need a quarter of a trillion dollars in 48 hours uh, for the PPP. Well, we support the PPP. It was part of uh, our putting together CARES 1. Uh, we were successful, the Democrats in the House and Senate, in turning, flipping it from a corporate trickle-down bill to a workers' first bubble-up bill. And part of it was that Paycheck Protection Program. But we want it to work for everyone. What we were finding out in just even the first hours of it was that the, 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 the uh, initiative, the, it was not working for the, shall we say, underbanked. And so we said, just give us 10% of the money for those who may not have a sophisticated banking relationship, who are getting cut out of this first come, first serve, usually to the friends of the bank. Uh, we don't want to make the banks the villains in this. They're doing a job. Uh, it's covered. They have no exposure. It's covered uh, by the S Small Business Administration. Uh, have no uh, anything to do with their balance sheet because it's off. These loans are off the books. And if people uh, comply with what the criteria are of it, these loans can be forgiven. Very good. However, they must reach uh, those everyone. And we had a plan, sixty billion dollars. We still have it. It's still something we want to negotiate with them. $60 billion for what is called community development financial institutions. And those are those like uh, even um, credit unions, uh, community banks, this or that, that know the neighborhood, know the businesses, know the people, know the culture, and, and can make these loans, facilitate, expedite these loans going to people who are the local uh, barber shop or some businesses that, again, don't have a banking relationship. Why would they want to cut that whole layer of people, mostly women, minority-owned businesses, Native American, rural America, veterans, uh, all participating in those initiatives? And so we're just saying this cannot, we cannot allow the billions, hundreds of billions of dollars being spent to, to fight the horror of the coronavirus and the impact on our economy to further harden uh, the, the disparity, the lack of access to, uh, to credit for so many in the small business community. And so let's have that discussion. State and local governments are desperate for resources. Hospitals, desperate for resources. Uh, that's what we're saying we need. Small businesses, state and local governments and hospitals 
Uh, that is what the Senate put on the floor last week. We're very proud of them uh, for doing that. And that is something that needs to be done. Instead, the Republicans said, well, we want to see how the money that we're spending on state, local, and hospitals works before we do any more. But they're not putting the PPP to any test of, of that. And, and frankly, we're getting many complaints that people are not getting the response they should get. Let's have that be scientific. Let's document that so that it works as intended. We all want it to work. We all want to facilitate that. But we cannot do it by ossifying the lack of access uh, to credit for smaller businesses in our country. And we're back. We had a little technical issue on my end of the end of that interview. I didn't get a chance to, to properly uh, bid adieu to the Speaker of the House. So I want to bring her back right now that my camera's uh, functioning and ask her another question as long as I have her. Speaker Pelosi, thanks for, for bearing with us. I know you're going to challenge President Trump uh, and his desire to pause funding for the World Health Organization. Um, I have to say, I have followed your career enough to know that you're actually a pretty strong China hawk. You've been very critical of the Chinese government uh, since I've been covering you now for for decades. Um, Do you not see the point that President Trump has to make, which is that the Chinese government was not transparent, covered up a lot of what was going on in Wuhan, and then the World Health Organization, at the very least, seemed to enable it? Well, first, uh, let me... uh Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to talk about small business, because there's nothing more entrepreneurial, more optimistic than anyone can do than to start a small business, maybe except get married. But uh, anyway, you weigh the equities. uh, And so we want to support the small businesses, all of them, and support the PPP and hope that we can work together to do that. Having said that, what the Republicans are proposing will not get unanimous consent in the House of Representatives. In terms of the World Health Organization, uh, the position that the president has taken, you ask, does it make sense? I say it's senseless. The World Organization is, organization is there to felt, fight disease, pandemics, and all of this throughout the world. And for us as the United States of America to undermine that just doesn't make sense. And that's why you'll see even some, I don't know if the Republicans will speak out, but I know they have, many of them have supported the World Health Organization in the past. Whatever the situation is, as far as China is concerned, and that's a matter of science to tell us what the story is there. But the fact is that the scientists, the technology, the convergence of all of these resources in a global way because this is a global pandemic, as you know, uh, is something that to for us to say we're not a part of, again, is senseless. All right, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, thank you so much. Continue to stay healthy and safe. We agree. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you at this sad time. Thank you so much. Today, the IRS insists adding President Trump's name to paper stimulus checks will not slow down delivery. The Washington Post first reported the addition of the president's name on the checks, saying that the decision could possibly delay the issuance of the checks. Let's bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley to talk about this. And Julia, the IRS is reportedly rushing to send off the paper checks for printing by tomorrow. It's unprecedented to have a president's name on a check like this, and it's not easy just to add it. 
No, it's not. It requires computer coding changes. That system then has to be rechecked. But to your point, the Treasury and now the IRS confirming that these checks will be going out from next week and that is on schedule. I guess we leave it to others, Jake, to impress the point on how essential it was to have the president's name on these checks when people are so desperate for money. Retail sales uh, fell 8.7% in March. That's the worst drop Mm. on record, according to the Census Bureau. That doesn't mean that all factions of the retail industry are down, however. No, you're right. We're buying more online than I think we've ever done. Amazon, of course, hiring thousands of workers just to cater to that demand. What we're buying here is essentials. We're hoarding groceries. We're buying medicines. That's what these numbers show. What we're not buying is the things we don't need because we're sitting at home, things like clothes, a new car, for example. But net-net, we're spending a lot less. I think the key for these numbers is that as bad as March was, this month is going to be worse. We've seen millions more people filing for unemployment benefits, and it will be a whole month, basically, spent shutting doors and staying at home. This last month is bad. April will be worse. While many small businesses uh, have applied to get loans uh, from the Small Business Administration through the Paycheck Protection Plan, which we were just talking about with Speaker Pelosi, mm. um, there are a, a couple uh, discrete industries that are suing because they're not eligible, specifically lobbyists and strip clubs are not eligible. What's the story there? Two strip clubs in particular are now suing the government or the Small Business Administration. They're saying, look, they're struggling. They need a grant from the Paycheck Protection Scheme to pay their workers. Those workers just happen to work at a sex-related venue or a strip club. But it's not just them, remember. It's lobbyists, too, are saying they should be eligible for these loans, and they aren't. What it's going to come down to is a legal decision on who and whose workers are allowed to get access to these things. But, of course, legal decisions take time, Jake, and these are businesses that are struggling like anybody else. It's interesting. I'm sure that the Congress thought that they didn't want any stories about uh, lobbyists or, or strip club owners getting this money. But uh, free money about if, if you don't like those industries, if you don't like those industries, you try to outlaw them. I mean, they're part of the American system. Uh, Julia yeah. Chatterley, thanks so much. Our next guest is refusing to listen to some of his colleagues calling to reopen some parts of his state. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine is live with us next. Stay with us. news, the city of Los Angeles may have to wait until 2021 before large gatherings such as concerts or sporting events will be able to legally resume. This is according to internal emails obtained by the Los Angeles Times. Mayor Eric Garcetti suggested these events may not be approved for at least one year, according to the Times. His spokesperson confirmed the mayor's comments, saying, quote, the mayor was referencing best practices for safely reopening our economy. Joining me now to discuss this and much more is the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine. Governor DeWine, um, what do you think about the next time you can go to a, a Browns game or or a, a Reds game? Do you foresee concerts, sporting events canceled in Ohio until 2021? You know, I, I don't really know. Um, you know, if you start looking at what you're going to do sequentially, uh, probably the last thing you, you open back up uh, is a big event where you've got a lot of people, whether it's a concert or whether it's a football game or, or uh, you know, a, a baseball game. And, and those are all, uh, you know, 
near and dear to my heart, and I know it for many Ohioans and Americans, but. Mm. Seems like the shot for uh, Governor DeWine has uh, just gone out. We'll bring him back uh, whenever we can. Oh, he's back here. Okay. You, you were saying, Governor, you were go- Governor DeWine, you were saying that those are near and dear to your heart, uh, and then you froze up. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, well, I just think those are the, probably the last things that you can open up. Uh, I think any big gathering uh, is something that's going to be the last thing. I mean, you're going to start to try to get some businesses back that can practice the, the distancing and, and, and do those things before you're able to open up to the, the, the big concerts. And, you know, one of the things I, I talked about today to the people of Ohio is that uh, until we get a vaccine, things are not going to be really normal. And, you know, particularly people who are high at risk, uh, people who, because of their age or because of some medical condition, you know, are going to be exceedingly careful uh, until we get that that vaccine. And I'm sure they're going to be, you know, weighing, uh, you know, the odds of if, if I go to a football game, or I go to a baseball game. Is that is that really worth it? And and that's, again, someone who's a who's a big fan. But it's it's right. a different world until we get a vaccine. Let's turn to the situation specifically in Ohio, where you've suffered more than 7,500 coronavirus cases and more than 320 deaths from the virus. I think it's 324 at this hour. Now, you've said your team is working on a plan to reopen the state. Um, what would be the first step in trying to do that? And do you have any sort of timeline in mind? Well, we've we've reached out to businesses uh, both those that we've already deemed essential and those that were deemed non-essential and started working with them about how they can provide a safe workplace for their employees. Uh, and we've had some experience. We've had companies that have done a very good job that have stayed open uh, during during this uh, uh, epidemic. So that's, you know, a place we start. We also look to our hospitals. We've stopped elective surgeries at our hospitals because we don't have enough personal protection equipment. So once we're assured that we have enough personal protection equipment, uh, you know, we will be able to then start rolling those things out with the hospital so they can get back to, you know, taking care of people uh, on things that are not just total emergencies. And do you have any idea when you might start to take some of these initial steps? Uh, would, Would it be May 1st, which is a goal that President Trump is talking a lot about? Uh, would it be strictly based on what your health commissioner and others uh, tell you, whether that's in uh, June or July? What, what are you thinking? Well, we're thinking, you know, we got to look at the numbers. I mean, what we've seen in Ohio in the last week is that we've looks like we've leveled off uh, fairly flat now in regard to hospital admissions. Uh, and so that's a good thing. Uh, you know, we want to see if we get another week of that and see if this is really the, the right trend. And what, what we'd like to see, of course, is those numbers to start down. But we're already moving forward with, with plans. But no, we do not have a, a specific date. Uh, that's going to depend on, you know, as we see these facts uh, unfold. I mean, we, 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 we've got to get back. We've got to get people back uh, working. But at the same time, we don't want to be in a situation where we do things that dramatically uh, shove that curve up again and we're back at the problem again. I mean, we're going to live with this virus, I guess is my message to people of Ohio. We're going to live this, with this virus until we get a vaccine. And so that's going to mean different things. It's going to mean we're going, people who are working are going to have 
uh, you know, mask on. Uh, people who are out in public, uh, you know, are going to have those on. Um, a lot of different things uh, are going. Things are just going to be different, and uh, that's the sad truth. And are you going to make your decision regardless of whether President Trump calls for uh, governors to start to take steps to reopen businesses on May first, or are you going to listen to what he he wants to do? Well, we're certainly going to listen to the president. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that people miss is that we have a lot of uh, exchange back and forth with the vice president and the president. This week, we had an hour and a half conference with governors and, and the vice president. It was just great. Uh, they do this all the time. And so we're exchanging information back and forth all the time. We're going to, you know, take certainly take that into consideration. Ultimately, we have to craft a plan that is uniquely Ohio. Uh, for Ohioans. And Ohioans are anxious to get back to work. We've got to make sure that they can do it in a safe way uh, and that we can we can protect them. Governor Mike DeWine, thank you so much. Best of luck to you and the, and the good citizens of Ohio. Thank we you. appreciate your time. There are only around 45,000 people there, but it has the highest coronavirus death rate per capita in the United States. We'll take you there next. Today, the number of coronavirus cases around the world has now passed 2 million. New Zealand's prime minister and her cabinet are going to take a 20 percent pay cut for the next six months. India is restarting some industries as early as next week, despite a lockdown. They include farming and fishing, construction, e-commerce and transportation. In Japan, health experts are warning if coronavirus is not contained, 400,000 people in that country could die. CNN's Will Ripley joins me now live from Tokyo. Uh, Will, why do experts think the death toll could be so high in Japan? It's a staggering number, Jake. And this is from a leading panel of experts assembled by the Japanese health ministry. This is their worst case scenario if Japan does not implement social distancing measures. And they have a long way to go to reach the government's goal of 70 to 80 percent reduction in human to human contact. But Some social distancing measures are already in place. So I think realistically, they're not expecting 400,000 people to die, but they are expecting a huge number of people to die in this country if much more dramatic steps are not taken immediately to slow the spread of this virus. The problem is, is that they've had a really hard time with the messaging to the public, Jake, messaging that only really began after the announcement of the postponement of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. The government for a long time was focusing on a strategy of very minimal testing, tracing clusters contact tracing, a strategy that was convenient for the government when they were trying to save the Olympics. But now they found themselves with a basically an artificially low number of cases and no real idea of how much this virus is spreading. And also, Jake, there's a real shortage of ventilators and ICU beds. Japan did not bolster its public health system. Uh, Will Ripley in Tokyo, thank you so much. A new nationwide study from Harvard University says coronavirus patients with previous high exposure to air pollution are more likely to die from the infection. That might be why one parish in Louisiana is seeing the highest death rate outside of New York State, as CNN's Ed Lavendera reports. In mid-March, Diane and Edward Jasmine attended church services led by their son in Laplace, Louisiana. Pastor Antoine Jasmine noticed his parents looked ill that morning. A few days later, the couple ended up in the hospital as doctors confirmed they were both infected with coronavirus. This is the last time I saw them was seated here. Last week, Pastor Jasmine was recording a sermon when he got the dreaded message. I was preaching and that 
I got the text, your father just passed. And I kept preaching. Two hours later, he got another message. His mother had also died. If someone told me your parents are going to leave you, I would have not accepted it. It just was mind-blowing, and still today, it's still shocked. The Jasmines lived their whole lives in St. John the Baptist Parish, which sits along the Mississippi River between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. It's home to a sprawling collection of chemical and industrial plants. The area has been at the center of battles over air pollution for decades. It's often called Cancer Alley. This tiny parish, with a population of about 45,000 people, has the country's highest per capita coronavirus death rate, according to a data analysis by the New York Times. 569 coronavirus cases have been reported in St. John's, and 47 people have died. We are dying at unprecedented numbers right here in St. John's. St. John Parish resident Robert Taylor leads a protest of environmental activists. They believe long-term exposure to the toxic air in their neighborhoods has made them even more vulnerable to dying from COVID-19. We're losing people. I mean, it is terrible. What is it going to take for people to stand up to this? When you see the list of the counties that have have the highest death rate, you know, and all of a sudden you see St. John at the top of this list, is that pretty shocking for you? I was shocked. The correlation is right. We have a lot of people here who are ill. We are ill because we've, we're under attack. We must stand up to this. If you breathe it in, these chemicals every single day, it automatically affects your immune system. COVID attacks mostly people with low immune system. Those are the ones that are dying. Some say residents in the parish were slow to take social distancing seriously to keep the virus from spreading. It's also a parish with high rates of underlying health issues. Tulane University epidemiologist Susan Hasick says more research is needed, that there is no definitive link between the chemical exposure and the high death rate in St. John Parish. We don't know whether it's contributing 2% of the increased risk or 10% of the increased risk or maybe higher. We just don't have the information that we need at the present time to be able to make that kind of a statement. Antoine Jasmine doesn't know how his parents' lifelong exposure to air pollution might have affected their battle with coronavirus, but the question will always linger. Ed Lavendera, CNN, Laplace, Louisiana. I haven't been able to deliver a lot of good news for you, but here's one for you amid all the sadness captured on cell phone video. This mother, Yanira Soriano, you see her there in the wheelchair, is meeting her newborn baby boy for the very first time today. There he is. It's even more moving because she was critically ill from COVID-19. At 34 weeks pregnant, doctors felt that they needed to put her into a medically induced coma and then put her on a ventilator. They then performed an emergency cesarean section because her life and her child's life were in jeopardy. Yanira spent 11 days on the ventilator. She was at Northwell Health Southside Hospital in Hartit, Suffolk County, New York. Her baby was transferred to a children's hospital while she recovered. Doctors did not know if she was going to survive or not. But today, Yanira went home. The entire hospital lined the hallway to give her a very poignant send-off, congratulating her on her amazing recovery. The hospital says Yanira has named her little boy Walter. 
congratulations to, to the mother and her baby and their family. We're so happy to report a story like this. And congratulations and thank you to all the health care providers at the hospital. The White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing starts in just a few minutes. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.